There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. In school, it's just not encouraged. We're crying out for young people to do apprenticeships. What you need to do is be on my side. Every time that it happens, we have to talk about how the good men feel. They sent me on for psychiatric assessment and they said that the thing that's going to fix it is housing. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Morning. I had to laugh last night when I read this particular story. First of all, I checked the date to know was it the 1st of April and then it wasn't and then I realised that it comes out at a very appropriate time if you are a Cobra Kai fan and myself and my son are Cobra Kai fans Uh, if you know what I'm talking about you know what I'm talking about but see this story yesterday where the guards the senior guard the management have asked for training in the Japanese police fighting system of Tahio Jitsu now, Japanese police are fairly lethal. You, you won't get past two of them in the street, that lone one. And they, you know, they don't, they don't hold back either when confronted. But the Gardaí have asked for experts to train the Gardaí in Taiho, Taiho Jitsu, which is the Japanese police self-defense system. And I was reading it last night and laughing because myself and the boy were watching Cobra Kai at the weekend and if you're into it season 5 is just dynamite and while I was laughing at that then I came across another story which is before the courts so there's not a whole pile we can say about it but this taxi driver story and I don't know when I tell you when it was it's got it's 7 or 8 years ago now since I remember talking to a lovely lovely man who was a taxi driver in Cork a man by the name of John Ford and he sat here in front of me in Studio One and told me what he'd gone through at the hands of, of a couple of thugs who attacked him and it's still going on it's still going on there's a story as I said, in front of the district courts, that whole pile we can say uh, where a man is charged with attacking a taxi driver. His name is Evan Crean. He was arrested uh, on the, um, the Rathmore Road and charged with carrying out a robbery back in May. And he's before the courts at the moment. But the allegation was that a taxi driver 
was robbed of 350 euro in cash. A dash cam was taken from its car. It's also been alleged in court that Evan Crean struck the taxi driver with a glass bottle in the head. And you wonder, these things are still going on. Uh, they're kind of two stories up against one another. But I wonder what anyone would think of guards being trained in martial arts. Pers- personally, I think it's a great idea. And the guards should probably have their own dojo and bring over a chosen. And and you know what you know where, you know where I'm going. But yeah, I do. I, I actually do think the guards should have their own form or be taught martial arts and be physically handy in the streets. I think it'd be a great idea. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Marvelous news last night. Fantastic news about Christy Moore coming to the Opera House in November, sixth November, for a concert in aid of the Life Centre and in honour of the great Don O'Leary. Tickets go on sale 10 o'clock tomorrow with all proceeds from that concert going to the Life Centre. It's not the first time Christie's done this kind of thing. He he gave a, a performance years ago. Was it in the Triscoll? Um, for the uh, Vita Cortex workers. Christie's a decent skin and every so often he chooses, I'm doing a gig for them. So he's doing one for the Life Centre and in honour of Don and the team, which is just brilliant to see. Come here, I better shut up and go to the phones. Uh, Lorna Bogue from Unrower to Gloss, uh, Green Left. Uh, Lorna, would you tell me first of all what a heating hub is uh, and then tell me why you brought it up at the council meeting. Morning. Morning, PJ. How are you? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, so it's basically a warm room. Um, the the library is already functioning in this way um, for homeless people. Um, So, you know, it's a free place to sit where it's warm during the day and you've access to Wi-Fi and bathrooms. Um, So that's essentially it. I I suppose with the the crisis that's happening at the moment um, with um, households paying over a thousand, thousand one hundred extra for their bills um, this year alone, um, you know, it's it's just trying to um, look at that issue of energy poverty, um, mm. which 29% of households actually um, are currently experiencing, according to the SRI. So um, it's I suppose it's it's just to because it's an emergency and because there isn't really too much that the council can do about people's energy bills. Um, I, I just thought it was a, a practical kind of suggestion, and it's something that um, councils all, all over. The UK are um, doing, you know. Would you be suggesting somewhere like, say, now off the top of my head, the Millennium Hall? Um, well, it would it would be public buildings anyway, so it could be the Millennium Hall or it could be um, the, the 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 concert hall in um, in, in City Hall, um, you know, where where the election count would normally um, mm. happen. Um, so you know, it's 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 any kind of public building um, that can be kept. Um, warm during the day um, and it's just so that because um, I mean like I've already had constituents say to me that they're turning off their heat um, yeah. or they're planning on turning off their heat during the day and it's particularly um, elderly people um, but that's something that concerns me because um, you know there's uh, there's known health impacts um, during cold weather so people are more at risk of um, heart attack and stroke sure. um, or um, illnesses like asthma um, and having asthma attacks and things like that um, mm-hmm. while they're living in cold conditions. Um, so it's really, really very serious. And I suppose, you know, I, 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 I don't necessarily want to be suggesting something like this. Like, actually, I would prefer if the 
government put a cap on energy prices so that um, this wasn't such a systemic issue. Yeah. But unfortunately, we just have to go with what we're given I, here. I guess, Lorna, in fairness, you know, with or without an energy crisis, um, people were already using the library uh, in wintertime to stay yeah. warm, you know? Yeah, well, well, this, well, this is it. And um, fuel poverty is one of those things that um, has gone under the radar for a very long time. Um, and I suppose uh, something that has kind of fed into my thinking about why this is um, a good idea at the moment is at the at that council meeting, I asked as well about um, low cost um, retrofitting schemes, and it turns out that all of the low cost retrofitting schemes for local authority housing stopped in twenty twenty one. Um, and this is at the same time as last year there being an 80 million euro underspend in retrofitting because the way that the government is doing retrofitting now is that they're saying, oh, you know, basically you have to get everything that you're doing up to a B2 standard. So mm. it's all duck or no dinner as far as they're concerned. So there, there's there's very simple things that we used to be able to offer like, mm-hmm. you know, windows and lagging jackets and radiator foils and things like that that um, are no longer available and yeah. haven't been since 2021. If you go the whole, unless you go the whole hog, you get no hog. Yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. So... And I know because I've been hearing about this and reading about it. There are places in the UK where they're already keeping public buildings open and keeping them warm. Would you do it? Would you suggest having a building open round the clock, Lorna? Um, well, if if needs be, I suppose. But um, you know, I, I I think it's more during the day because obviously this would have to be operated by council staff as well. Yeah. Um, so if the resources were there. For something that would be 24 hours, um, you know, great. But um, I, I suppose I'm more thinking about during the day um, because then what people tend to do is, you know, they they can they can go to bed and wrap up. But I mean, again, that's that's pretty grim, like you know. It is. it is. People were suggesting in previous winters too, in cold winters and wet, damp winters and churches. And now the council have no control over um, churches, but maybe they could work with no. work with the church, maybe to keep keep open. Well, well, yes. If 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 there's if there's if there's anyone out there who is the proprietor of a large publicly available building um, that can heat it, um, you know, yeah, I, I think I think it's something that we're all going to have to do something about because you know the unfortunate reality is is that. You know, all across Europe, um, governments are nationalising um, energy production and they're doing that because that's a really important input to the economy. But also because if, if people don't have access to energy, uh, people die. Um, so all of this is happening across Europe. And yet here, um, what is happening is that the government is leaving it to the private market so that people can line their pockets. Um, and they're always going to do things like that. So we, the only choice we have is to look after each other. Yeah, yeah. We've seen another energy provider on the on the on the point of leaving the market here, which will drive more people back to the suppliers of last resort and more bills, more huge bills. So, would you have you 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 brought it up at council? Did you what kind of reception did you get for it, Lorna? Well, again, like the way that council works is that um, I've introduced the motion, so now it's going back to a committee and a report will be produced and that report will be brought to the next council meeting where we'll discuss it. Um, so I'll have I'll have more on it, um, I suppose, as as the story unfolds. Um okay. but um yeah, I'm 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 hoping now that you can um What get sense did you get um, when you not, brought it up? What sense did you get? 
Um, well, see, again, like it's kind of, it, it was it was in an appendix to the agenda. Right, so um, you haven't so had a chance I, to sound it out yet. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but the sense I got when I asked my question about the retrofishing scheme is that um, council staff as well are actually quite anxious to get those low cost things back up and running again. So I, I think the council staff are interested in helping people with the um, fuel poverty crisis. Um, it's just the case of um, how, how can we actually work together to get it sorted. So um, I, I hope it's something that can get support from not just councillors, but council staff as well. Um, but at the end of the day, I should stress again, this is a total temporary emergency thing sure. that I'm suggesting. Sure. I shouldn't have to be suggesting something like that. We shouldn't have to be suggesting that people get out of their homes and come and sit um, in a council building in order to stay warm. But but this is the reality um, that people are facing um, and nothing is being done about it. Um, and the private market is being protected instead. Okay. Lorna, thank you. Lorna Bogue uh, of Unrowered Glass uh, Green left, formerly a uh, Green Party councillor and of course left the party and now is part of the Rowerta loss. What do people think of that though? It's happening in the UK they're leaving libraries and they're leaving public buildings open and will leave them open during the winter so people can come in and just sit down and stay warm and the library does this if you walk around our library in any winter of all time, ever you'll find people there huddled in the corner trying to get a bit of warmth so it's it's not a new thing uh, What what do you think of it? Keeping the idea that we would keep that the council would keep and fund a public building to stay open so that people could stay warm during the uh, energy crisis and during the winter that's going. We've no idea weather-wise what that winter will bring. We just know it'll be cold and wet and dark and horrible, like every winter is in this country. So a public building kept open and funded so people could simply go in there and stay warm and maybe get a cup of tea. A sandwich. Just something. Thank you, Lorna Bogue. 0818 96 96 96. Hear only the freshest hits of 2022. Or train harder while we pump out the bangers. The Hit Mix and the Fit Mix are streaming live right now. On the Quartz 96 FM app. Download it today. Download it today. Listen on your smart speaker or go to 96fm.ie. Quartz 96 FM. wonder what your thoughts are on, we'll be going to the cost of living uh, again in a, in a while, the cost of living march, of course, coming up in Cork at the weekend, 17th, Saturday 17th. Uh, cost of living march in Cork, 2 o'clock. I don't know what you think of this increase announced this morning when the minimum wage will be approved today by Cabinet and come into effect on the 1st of January. Minimum wage going up from 10.50 an hour to 11.30 an hour, which is a 7.6% increase from the 1st of January. I'd like to know what you think about that. But banking charges, and with banks going out of the market, a lot of people having to move their stuff around at the moment. Ian, morning. Morning, morning, PJ. How are you keeping? Good. You're right to tell us about charges. Just yeah. in charge to get out of your bank. Yeah, just to get out of the bank. I just say um, I was just went. I'm off for a couple of days off work, you know. So I basically uh, was getting emails in Texas from the bank just uh, about um, closing my bank um, and basically moving from one bank and then picking out another bank. So I know, and I knew it's been, it's been happening for a while. So what I did is I picked I picked a, a local bank to where I work. 
through the easier for me. And what I did was first I basically moved all my direct debits um, out of that and into my new bank before I moved my wages across. So I kind of did everything that the bank wanted me to do correctly yeah. before I moved out, out of Ulster Bank. And, and just then what one I did, question, Ian, before yeah. you go on. Like, no do, do they do the heavy lifting for you? Because I'm glad I'm not in the position of having to do it. But do they do the heavy lifting for you? They, they can do it, but then what happens is you have to go in there and you have to go to a bank that will actually switch it for you. But what I wanted to do is I kind of wanted to do it myself so I could actually watch my wages and then watch my direct debits come in. No, I don't have a lot of direct debits and my wages will go in, so I only had like two or three that I needed to do. So I kind of kind of did it myself first, really, so that I knew I kind of went in at the right times and I picked the right days that, that suited myself then as well. You know? So I kind of had it all set up. Um, that, that suited me, really, to be honest, you know. So uh, I basically went and told the bank yesterday, once I had all my direct debits done, I had my wages done, I left it a month, and then I said I'd go in this week now to cancel my bank and my Ulster Bank account and my, and my Visa card, just to say, look, I'm now sorted with my new bank. So I went in yesterday, uh, yesterday morning, and then I went in yesterday morning to the bank to cancel it, and my balance in Ulster Bank was zero, and my Visa card is zero. So I'm just basically going in to, to cancel it. So this is just... The reason I sent you the message is just in case anybody decides to go in and, and, right. and do it. Right. So you'd mop up everything. You'd cleared your visa. Your cleared account visa, was clear. It, yeah. yeah. Everything was zero. Zero, zero on both. So I wasn't transferring any money from one credit card to another. I wasn't moving any debt from one bank to another. I was just basically going in, zero, zero, cancelling it and walking out the door. So when I went, when I went into the counter, very nice girl in there. Staff were really nice. All, always has been in the bank. And basically, um, I had... A ten-year maintenance fee I had to pay, and then I had to pay taxes of eight fifty, which, which which I didn't know about. So I didn't know about the maintenance fee because I hadn't I haven't had a maintenance fee in, in the last while from Ulster Bank because of, because they were shutting down, and the eight fifty when I questioned the lady over the eight fifty, she just said it was basically a general a taxation government back tax. She, she called it. No, I didn't actually argue with her, but again, I was just kind of saying eighteen fifty was kind of a bit. It was a bit more truly, to be honest, just to kind of say, look, I have, I have paid everything off yeah. and I'm now moving from banks. So then I had to leave the bank, go into the pass machine, get 20 euros and then come back in and pay the 1850 into the lady then. Uh, you can cancel your credit card in, in the bank because the credit card company is different to Tulsa Bank. So um, when I was on Tulsa Bank regarding uh, cancelling my credit card, uh, he said to me to hold on to my card for the year because you pay your tax of 30 euros at the 1st of April. Right. So, so if you've got a credit card, you pay 30 euros tax on it. You do. For the, for the year. So I just assumed that, right, I paid the 30 euros on the 1st of April, yeah. and then I'd have a year then before next year before I'd have to cancel my credit card. So on the day when I was there, I said I, I cancelled my credit card, by which the lady then told me that I had to pay an additional 30 euros in taxation to cancel the credit card. Well, well, but well, I tried well, to well, explain well, to her. Why? <laughs> that's the thing I, I sent you the message yesterday was just to say that if I'm one individual who paid 10 euros and 8.50 and 30 euros it came up to about 48.50 how many more people will be going in there now from what I can see yesterday there's about 400,000 Ulster Bank accounts that haven't been closed yet so by the time Ulster Bank leave the market they want the money that they're going to take yeah. from from the tax from, from between taxation and fees is, is going to be quite a sum of money before they even leave and Ian you're a fellow who who as it were, had made your peace with your accounts. Your visa was clear. Yeah, yeah, your, yeah. Your, your, your debts were piece. clear. You, you yeah, were, were clear. Just says you, let me sign that and walk out the door and cut them cards up. That's all you wanted. That, that, that's it, yeah. That's 50 quid for the pleasure. 50, 50, 50 quid for the pleasure. And the point that I, I, I texted yesterday was just to say, look, if I'm 50 euros and there's 400,000 and then there's probably people beyond that, how much more 
would be taken. So my, my point is, is just if anybody's going in there to cancel, just make sure they do have a couple of bob in their pocket or their wallet just to clear whatever fees they they have to give. No, the interesting part about it, please, is that none of them actually told me in writing in letters throughout this that I had to pay additional anything. And then, yeah. and then the, the funny thing is this morning I got a letter from Ulster Bank and I had to pay 30 euros to cancel my credit card. Right. And I only, I only got that this morning after I cancelled it. Good man. Ian, thank you for that. A cautionary tale if you're moving from Ulster Bank, which you have to because they're leaving the Irish market. There's another one or two doing it too, but Ulster Bank, so he's he, he owes nothing on his visa card. All his debts are cleared at the bank. He's in a position to make his piece at the bank and not, not owe them a cent. So he's 50 quid for the pleasure. 0818 96 96 96. Thank you, Ian. Alan Connolly was on from Connolly Insulation. You can get an SEAI grant for cavity wall or attic insulation. And you don't have to show that it's part of a project. So it's not really all or nothing, just to be sure of that. Thank you, Alan. That is something I wasn't aware of. Because the impression out there is if you start doing any retrofitting work at all, until such time as you have ticked a number of boxes, you won't get anything. But what I'm taking this to understand, Alan, and again, feel free to contact me again if I'm wrong. What you're saying to me is I can improve my attic insulation, I can improve my cavity wall, and I don't have to apply for a grant. That's a good point. He said you can get an SEAI grant for cavity wall and or attic insulation and you don't have to show it's part of a project that will result in B2, BER. So it's not all or nothing, just a correction. Thanks, Alan. That's new. That's actually news to me. I didn't know that. 0818 96 96 96. Scams, scam alerts, they're everywhere. Some of them very, very subtle. And you'll be halfway, you'll be, you'll be caught up, you'll be knee-deep in the damn things before you know where you are. John was on to raise awareness of another scam. He said, it's a message, oh, I've had this one myself. It's a message from on post saying, pending delivery notification. Please note, your parcel's waiting for delivery. Please proceed with reception confirmation using the link below. There's a button to press and it finishes with this confirmation must take place within the next 48 hours. I've had it. I've had that. I wasn't expecting anything, so delete it and block the number it came from. Somebody was on to us. This is interesting. If you leave your fridge open, this is in context of energy, if you leave your fridge open for 20 seconds, you know the way you would do it, you get butter out of the fridge and you leave it open, you go back for the cheese. If you leave your fridge open for 20 seconds, it takes 45 minutes for it to get back to the correct temperature and state that it was in. Wow. And if you open, apparently if you open the oven to check the state of the meat or the spuds or the veg, it has the same effect. Crikey. Another thing we didn't know. That's every day at school day. See where there's a... Now, you can laugh at this or you can be outraged at it. Uh, Dublin Live is kind of the Dublin equivalent of Cork Bio and they have a story of a tent... In a back garden. Now, it's a decent-looking tent, to be fair. It's a decent-looking tent. And it's got lots of soft furnishings and two very comfortable beds. And it's got access to the house. It's in the back garden. It's got access to the facilities in the house, like you can use the kitchen. And 
use the toilet, use the bathroom, all of this. But the owners put the tent up on Airbnb, if you don't mind. So the picture on Airbnb. Now the ad, I think, seems to be gone since Dublin Live uh, reported on this. But he'd gone and put the tent up on Airbnb, offering it for 35 quid a night. Now, you kind of think in the context of Garth Brooks and some hotel rooms looking for 800 quid a night to stay after Garth Brooks. If you can get this tent in a back garden and the weather's good for 35 quid, you'd nearly take it, wouldn't you? But it's also a fairly drab commentary on where we are. But yeah, double uh, the large tent with a mini living room, double air mattress, blankets, duvets and pillows. It's a four-person tent, but set up for two people. The tent has blackout sides. You have full use also of the house facilities for showering and cooking. It's in a peaceful area and right next to my large house. A great environment to relax and be close to nature. <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh or be cross about that, to be perfectly honest with you. 0818 96 96 96. Kevin asks, is it worth knocking the plan to put the clocks back this year? I texted this was coming in August. Listening to Lorna, it's depressing at how slow things move. Uh, yeah. Put the clocks back. You see, Kevin, if you don't change the clocks in October, the way we've always done it in this country, if you don't change it in October, two things happen. One, you'll end up with two time zones on the island. Because if they go back in the north, which they will, you'll end up literally with Drogheda and Newry being in different time zones. And even if you could deal with that, you then have the problem where you're here in November or December more so. And I'm looking out that window and it's, what, it's 20 to 10 now and it'll barely be getting bright. Those are the problems you'd have if you didn't change the clocks in October. But again, it's one that people talk about a lot now. You've currently matched your previous score of 9 out of 10. The question I asked you was, Drax and Gamora are characters in what movie franchise? You said Guardians of the Galaxy, which was a guess. You've just won yourself 2,000 euros! What are you going to do with the money now? Drop a tease. Uh, drop a tease in, yeah, no, I don't know. I have to spend it. Another winner, Leo. Go, go, go. The two grand minute. Listen to play. At 7.40 and 8.40 every day. Casey and Ross in the morning. On Cork's 96FM. Just that Airbnb story, the tent in Dublin, that's kind of coming at the same time as MTU down here are asking people to take people in, take students in for digs. I remember a time when there'd be loads of students from both UCC and but it was then the regional tech or CIT, staying in digs in houses in Bishopstown. Um, you can get, I think it's 14 grand, you can earn 14 grand tax free if you take someone in for digs in, in your house, in a spare room in your house. It's MTU are looking for people to do that now uh, to try and deal with the student accommodation shortage. And then we've got this with your man in the tent in the back garden for 35 quid a night. 35 quid a night about seven threes. Well, 
that's yeah that's that's 250 260 quid a week which is over a thousand euro a, a month for a tent 0818 96 96 96 it's all part of course of the cost of living the enormous cost of living and there's a protest in Cork this weekend there's one next weekend in Dublin but there's one this weekend uh, Saturday afternoon 2 o'clock uh, starting on the Grand Parade organisers are predicting a large turnout John Mullins uh, of, uh, good morning PJ how are you? good good now you're expecting and hoping for a big turnout on Saturday yeah we are PJ um we're calling on the people of Cork, City and County to come out and support this because um, this is affecting everyone. And we, you know, we really, we really think that this really needs like um, a water charges type protest, you know. Uh, we really do, do need to get feedback on the street. Now, I've come on this morning to talk about um, our issues with water, yeah. PJ. You and I spoke before, uh, John, and the one thing that I would ask... Again, I tried to explain it when I was talking about you the last time, and it's it's a complex issue. So, briefly for listeners, you guys are worried about your futures. Yeah, look, PJ, you spoke to my colleague. It wasn't me. You spoke okay. to my colleague Don Carroll, right? Okay. Now, at the time, Don was calling for uh, our union SIP2 to come out and publicly state that the service level agreement was safe until 2026 and beyond, right? Yeah. Now, SIP2 wouldn't do that, okay? Now, we have emails from them assuring us that everything was fine and we had nothing to worry about, okay? Mm. Now, in June of this year, SIP2, uh, the group of unions brought out a document, the future, it was a framework document of the future delivery of water services, okay? Now, this deal was done with the government behind workers' backs. They had no mandate whatsoever to do this, okay? Right. Now, I believe that these negotiations were going on during COVID. Workers were kept in the dark. Right. Right? And what this deal proposes, PJ, is that from the 1st of January 2023, all local authority water services will be handed over on a plate to Irish Water. Okay. Okay, right? Now... The document states that we can stay with And is that saying to me so, John, that your employers, instead of being the council, would be Irish Water, correct? No, PJ, and this is this is where it really gets confusing, right? You have a choice to go to Irish Water, okay? Or you can stay with your local authority. Now, if you stay with your local authority in water services, you do so until 2026. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But you come under the direct management and control of Irish Water. Now, SIP2 are saying there's no force transfer. But to me, that is a force transfer through yeah. the back door. It's 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 a tad right? complicated for the lay person, John, but I, I do get it that, that you're very worried about it. Just briefly, how many workers are involved? No, no, in like in nationwide PG, you're talking over 3,000 workers. Okay. But PG, the point that, I'm, that I want to make on this, okay, is that if this if this goes through in its in its current form, okay, okay, right? We firmly believe that the government will look at this and say, "Hang on a while, we have what we wanted." So what's the need for a referendum? They'll kick the referendum back down the road again. We've been promised a referendum on the ownership of Irish war on the public ownership of of water services yeah. since 2015, 2016. 
and it's been continuously kicked down the road. Now, if they get what they want with this deal, I call it a deal, PJ. It's not an agreement because the workers had no say in it. Okay. Right? I've, we firmly believe then that Irish water will be sold off. The first sign of distress in the economy, Irish water will be sold off. And water charges are very much back on the agenda again, PJ. That's a scary now, thing to is, hear. Because I, I know when we sold off board gosh, and people like Charlie Weston in The Independent will tell you it was a stupid, stupid thing to do to sell off board gosh yes. to Centrica. And now we look at this. So you're saying here, John Mullins, that if the transfer of everything over to Irish water happens as you believe it's going to happen, you see down the road the selling off of Irish water to someone like Centrica who would bring in water charges and we'd have no control over it. That's what you're predicting. A hundred percent. All right. Okay, PJ. Right, and look, PJ. Well, that, right, that's kind of a discussion uh, that I wanted to. Ha- I, we will have, but I, I want to focus for a minute, if I could, on the on the cost of living increase. Um, as as a union person, um, in terms of something like the minimum wage this morning, and other such issues, like for the general populace, the the cost of living. Uh, do you think there's anything going to happen in the budget in thirteen days' time? There will be something happen, PJ, but will it go far enough? Like, I, I just can't get my head around the government um, so entrenched against um, capping the prices. I mean, you know, if someone is given a €200 Euro credit off their next DSB bill, right, what's stopping from these, these companies from increasing the prices again? And there's your €200 Euro swallowed up. Mm. Cap the prices. Cap the prices. Mm. I, I, I think that's the best solution. It doesn't. The cost you know, of it's that, only going to though, be a John, measure. The, co- the cost of that realistically could be astronomical because of wholesale prices of energy anyway. So the capping is a great idea. And there's a, an opinion poll saying over two thirds of people who were asked the other day said, yeah, cap the prices at 2021 levels. But the economic cost of it. It's enormous. Yeah, but, but, but PJ, look at the profits that these companies are making. Yeah. There's price gouging going on well, left, right, not and being made centre. Here now, John. They're not being made here. They're being made overseas. DRPG, but it's feeding down into it, into the companies okay. here as well. A fair point. A point I can't argue with. Point I can't argue with. Yeah. You know, there there are there are people making a lot of money on the back of what's happening in Ukraine. And you know, PJ, when people talk about the war in Ukraine, right? Yeah. I can remember Pierre Stoherty. Mick Barry, Richard Boy Barrett coming out last August, September. Mm. And they were worrying about the price increases back then. Putin didn't go into Ukraine until March. So yeah. it, it, these increases are happening since last year. They were, they were happening. And they were pol- happening anyway. politicians were, were warning about what was coming down the road. Do you know... So to just... I, yeah? I'm old enough, John. <clears throat> uh, I'm old enough. To, I'm sure, I don't know whether you are. I'm old enough to remember the tax marches. Uh, the PAYE I do, I remember them well. Tax matches. Uh, I was too young to be part of them, but I'm old enough to remember them, if that's kind of... But I remember they practically shut the country down. And I'm thinking yeah. of unions like they are in France. Like, if the French unions decide, up with this we shall not put, the bloody country stops. It, is, it is, does, it are, does. Are we, are we, are we at cost- that point yet? 
are, are our unions strong enough to do that? No, 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 they won't. And I mean, PJ, look, as far as, far as I'm concerned, and this is my own personal opinion, right, is that the union that I've been a member of for 40 years are selling workers down the road. Mm-hmm. They've gone into bed with the government, right? In what way? And in what PJ, way? I, 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 in, in what way? In what way? In, 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 the fight has gone out of them. Like for a two percent, for a two percent pay rise, they've agreed that there'll be no strikes. Mm. And like PJ, I, I would love for you if you could someday to get a union official on, and I'll debate all these issues with them. Mm. Well, what they, what what right? they'll tell me is the greater good, and and all of this. But you see, PJ, the workers are the union. It's the worker script that pay the union employees. Yeah, yeah. What is it, by the way? Uh, now, wages. What, what is the what is the weekly or fortnightly? Well, personally, per, personally, I'm paying ten euros a fortnight. Okay. Okay. No, PJ, like this, this latest debacle now with Irish Water again. Like, I mean, they have just put up the white flag and yeah. and and surrendered, you know, services and yeah. potentially workers over. I mean, you look at another union up the country at the moment. You look, it's in all the papers, PJ. You look at what's happening to Brendan Ogle. I've I mean, seen, Brendan I've Ogle seen that. I'm not, champ- I'm, not, I'm, not yeah. up, I'm not sufficiently up on it to discuss it with you. I know Brendan. I've been to interviewed Brendan. I'm, I know he's been unwell, and I, I'm, I'm glad to see he's making a recovery, but I don't know a whole pile with that sto- about that story, John, so I'm, I'm going to leave it until I know more and maybe discuss it then. But look, big crowd you're hoping for Saturday afternoon. We will come back to it, I promise. We'll come back to the unions and come back to Brendan Ogle at some point. John, thank you for that. You're hoping there'll be a big turnout on Saturday. And that water prediction that John has made this morning, keep the tape of this. Can we keep the tape of this? John is making a prediction this morning that the way the water is being changed at the moment, where it's moving from the council's to Irish Water and all of this, he's predicting that down the road, Irish Water will be sold to something like Centrica or something like Water UK or some other big company like that and we'll have no choice but to start paying again. We shall see. It's a tape we'll keep. And on the Brendan Ogle story, the only reason that I don't want to discuss it with John right now is I don't actually, I haven't read properly into it, so I wouldn't be ill-equipped to discuss it properly with him. But we'll come back to it and come back to unions and come back to protests. Esther. Morning. How are you? What's up with you, girl? They're just talking about water there. They want to make it drinkable first, wouldn't they? <laughs> do anything with it because you couldn't drink the water here. But yeah. I'm raging over the tax office. Can you get a little bit closer to your phone there? Uh, the tax office, yeah. you know, the revenue revenue is just, oh, my my head is just wrecked. Um, I started in the beginning, okay, I went working eight weeks ago in a nursing home. I had two of my courses done and I said I'll give it a go. I went to actually doing activities coordinator and I always wanted to do healthcare, so I turned in a bit of that as well and I was delighted with myself. So... Me being me, look, I, I leave myself very flexible and I'd done 132 hours in the space of a month. And I was just, I, I loved it. I was absolutely loved it. And my first week, month's wages, delighted to be getting this. I said, I'm going off shopping now and I'll do whatever because, you know, it's, it's first time working in years in that kind of um, environment. But anyway, uh, got my wages. I should have got 1,545 euros and I got 845. Emergency tax, right? No, because I, you see, my the, the nursing home regist, 
registered me. And I was reading about this because I actually went in and I was looking at it and it says, if you don't register yourself personally, any company will register you anyway. They have to, it's, it's law. But if you have to go online and you have to register, even though they have you registered, you still have to go and do it yourself. And I always do it. I've never paid emergency tax before because I always got in before they did. So this is what I can't understand. And plus, I'm in employment already. I'm on a, a CE scheme. I'm on a trust scheme like so. Uh, that's what they, they said that I, no, they said that I get all the tax back. But then, they asked me to fill out this Form 11 for my husband, because my husband used to be in farming back in 2019. And, um, he gave it all up. You know, we, we moved away from where the farm was. We moved, Jesus, it's 40 minutes away. So he gave it all up and now he's working for the farm relief and goes around to the farmers and then he has another part-time job as well. So he's not in farming anymore, but still, in the, the, they asked me to fill in this Form 11. It had all his old details, so I filled in a new one. I hadn't really a clue what I was doing, but I filled in as best I could. <laughs> and you're here, just now, Jason, put in the wrong figure. And now you're going to take all of his wages. So that, I, I instantly yeah. got on it. What happened to me was I was just so flustered, and I put the wrong digits in the wrong, wrong page. Yeah, but and your I problem is you can't get through to talk to a human being at Revenue. Can't get through to explain all this, and I'm to stop taking our money, you know. And can you ring them and next you know, all you hear they you think great and they say press four or whatever and then it goes, We're sorry that uh, we can't get through or we can't take a call at this time, the volumes are the lines are closed. Uh, you send them inquiries, they don't t- they don't answer your inquiry for about two weeks. So you know, it's just there's non communication. And now I'm after ringing I rang Limerick this morning, I rang Dublin, I rang Cork and I rang this other place as well and not one of them. And the Limerick office is saying this number is no longer recognised. The Cork office is saying this number is no longer recognised. It gives you the tax thing, like, oh, welcome to the tax services, whatever. And then this man comes on, this number is no longer in service. <laughs> like, you know, on, on the Cork one and the Limerick. Oh, you'd, then, be, you'd, be, you'd be hammering your head off the wall, so you would. Esther, I thank you for your call. If anyone knows how Esther might get to talk to a human being at Revenue to sort out what seems to be just a paperwork issue with her taxes, uh, could you come and let us know and we'll let Esther know. Thanks, Esther, for no reason other than time. I'm going to leave it there. But trying to get through to a human being at Revenue, it sounds like you'd get through to the Pope easier. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96FM. Castellac FC will be hosting an evening with Republic of Ireland soccer legends on Saturday the 17th of September. Join Ray Houghton, Tony Cascarino, Mark Kinsella, Caroline Thorpe and many more for an evening of games and family fun. There will also be a Q&A session with the stars from 9pm. It's a ticketed event and over 18s only. More information can be found on Castellac FC Facebook page. If you have an event you would like mentioned, email the details to Cork Diary at 96fm.ie. The Cork Diary. With Tusla Fostering, now seeking foster carers from a diverse range of backgrounds in Cork. See fostering.ie. On Cork's 96fm. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Must say, a lot of love in the room this morning for John Mullins' uh, SIP2. 
activist, uh, water worker and all that before 10. He wanted to talk about the cost of living march and he wants as many people as possible to turn out on Saturday. And we're happy to return to that. And we will return to that. I think it's going to be a very, very big event. I'll be away for the weekend, but I think it will be a very, very big event in the city. But people are quite taken with John's explanation of what's happening with Irish Water and the Council and Water Workers, which is a bit complex, but he's broken it down very well. And his prediction is, his concern is, and let's note the date, today is the 14th of September 2022, and this is the date where John has made a prediction that if things keep going the way they're predicted to go, you'll end up with Irish water being sold to some foreign conglomerate who will impose water charges on us at a rate we could never have dreamed possible. If you look at what they pay for water in some parts of the UK, it would make your eyes water, let alone the taps in the corner of the kitchen. So that's the prediction John is making, as well as asking people to turn out for the cost of living march Saturday. PJ, SIP2 are no longer on the side of the worker, says this message. The money you pay SIP2 every month, half of it goes to the Labour Party. It was a traditional link. I think it's still there. Half that money goes to the Labour Party. Mick was on from Ballyfahan. The unions are not working for the people. The activists in the union should organise a dues strike. Stop paying your sub. Hurt them in the pocket and then they will listen. If they don't listen, people should start new unions. Uh, the man you had on the air was well able to talk. It's the likes of him that we need representing us. PJ, will people pay their trade union dues? A portion of it goes to the Labour Party, and we know how little they care about ordinary people, says Con. A lot of people sympathising as well with, um, with Esther's frustration with regard to contacting revenue. I'll come back to that. I also want your thoughts on the minimum wage because Social Party T, Mick Barry and others this morning have been hitting out at the increase in the minimum wage that will be agreed today. Cabinet will agree to increase the minimum wage from the 1st of January from 10.50 an hour to 11.30 an hour, which is the 7.6% increase in the minimum wage. That'll be signed off on today. But Mick and others are saying, look, you can't live on that. You simply can't live on that in the current economy. Uh, The Congress of Trade Unions is suggesting that it should be brought up to €12 an hour and subsequently brought up to €12.90 an hour. Whereas the business groups like ISME and IBEC are saying, hold on a cotton picking minute here. This will cost a load of jobs. Love to know your thoughts. 0818 96 96 96. Revenge porn is a term. I don't like it. I never have liked it. But it's a term that has come into common parlance. For when people break up, relationships go sour, as many relationships unfortunately do, that one side or the other has a photograph or a piece of video and they put it up there onto the internet for all to see. And it's called revenge porn. Or rather, it used to be, or rather, certain people would prefer we stopped using that term. Dr. Caroline West from Glow from the Glow West podcast. It's it's a term I never particularly liked, Caroline. I thought it was a lazy term and there must be a better way to express it. But you believe it should be dropped entirely for another reason. Morning. 
Morning, DJ. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you don't like it. Yeah, it's, it's not a great term at all because, as you said, you know, these are intimate images that may be released in, in a way to cause harm to somebody else. And we really have to name that for what it is. And that's abuse. You know, it's using sex and, and intimate images to abuse somebody. So I think once we call things by their na- the proper name for them, we help victims out there realise, actually, you know, this is a big deal and I can go and get support for this and I can make a prosecution if I want to take that path as well. So it is really about, you know, that awareness of, of what we're actually looking at here. You know, it's not something harmless. It's not something done, oh, just in the group chats for a bit of a laugh. Like this is actually people's lives on the line and their their health, you know, um, the mental health implications of this as well so it is huge and you know I think as you said we get a bit lazy sometimes we say things like food porn and travel porn and it just kind of makes it very kind of salacious you know so revenge porn isn't appropriate these are not porn professionals this isn't their job these are everyday people that didn't necessarily consent to have their image out there amongst everyone so I think it's it's part of that bigger conversation about consent When a relationship is over Caroline any image or video taken during the course of that relationship, whether it was consensual or whether it wasn't, I would suggest, is out of bounds. You know, when people are together, they they, they exchange things. That's that's what adults do. Fine, they're consenting adults. If you take something sneaky, you take something sneaky, and you shouldn't be doing it. But I would argue that once the relationship has reached its end, everything is off the table. Correct. Absolutely. You know, at Active Consent, we say to our students, we say if someone does send you a nude, like you view yourself as lucky and think this is a great gift that someone has given me. That's great. And when the relationship is over, you delete everything and you think, God, I was lucky enough to get that. That was great. And now we're moving on. Like if you end up with like a whole collection of lots of people's images, it can be a bit weird. Like imagine if you did that with like people's underwear or something, you know, you had like a drawer full of all your conquest underwear. Like that's kind of a bit of a weird thing. So, but when we look at it online, we don't really see it that much as well. So we want people to remember that, you know, like sending nudes isn't the problem. It's the people who choose to send nudes without consent. That's the problem. And that's people who are either sending them to you with it when you haven't requested it or someone making that decision to say, I'm going to send this image around to everybody or upload it online as well, which is something else that we have unfortunately seen. So renaming that and calling it abuse is definitely a way to help victims and and to inform perpetrators that actually, no, this isn't okay to do. Because the law has been there now since 2020, hasn't it, that makes this an offence, Coco's law. Yes, absolutely. I was enacted in February 2021, but it was passed in 2020. So there are some prosecutions coming up under that law. But again, it's it's been so new. Um, and obviously the joy of COVID as well has kind of delayed um, some cases as well. But there are, you know, victims coming forward. There's a great service called hotline.ie that where if this has happened to you, you can upload your report there. And I think it's great to see, again, once we've named this as image-based sexual abuse, people like the Rape Crisis Centres, Women's Aid and Men's Aid have been able to train their staff and offer support to victims coming forward as well. So I think that's great, you know, that we have that cultural change as well as the, I suppose, the legislation change. And is that the term you'd prefer people used? Well, we know what it is, obviously. Image-based sexual abuse is not the first time we've heard that. Is that the term same you'd prefer media to use? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's really important that people understand actually this is a form of sexual violence and there isn't that distinction between online sexual violence and in-person sexual violence because they all have the same impact on the victim of causing them um, trauma. So I suppose, you know, naming this for what it is, it's, it's a more accurate reflection of what's actually going on. You know, it's it's part of the spectrum of sexual violence and domestic violence. It's treating other people with no respect. It's, it's violating their consent, engaging in sexual violence. And that's what we want people to say, why would you do that? Why would you support sexual violence? Why would you carry that out? And maybe people haven't understood it in those kind of terms. So, you know, that, that educational piece that Active Consent are working on is really helped by media changes and naming this for yeah. what it is and, and realising actually this is a serious issue. As I said to you myself in the introduction, Caroline, it's a term I never liked. I just thought it was icky. Mm-hmm. I, I never mm-hmm. really liked it at all. I couldn't put my finger on quite why. I just felt it wasn't suitable so it's no problem for me to drop it but you'd like nobody to use that term anymore I think you know things about sexual violence and consent their understanding really changes quite rapidly because we're now finally really I suppose addressing this issue you know a few years ago we wouldn't have been having this conversation because we hadn't really kind of figured out what was going on and Ireland has historically not been great about talking about sexual violence we preferred to just be silent about it and then the problem with that was victims suffered by themselves or there was subjective victim blaming and you know we see this with the issue of sending nudes oh well just don't send them in the first place and again it's not the issue of taking the nude the issue is with the person violating that consent Mm. so when we when we kind of update our understanding, it's great to bring everyone else along so that we don't have 13-year-olds in school going, oh, I'll send this around to the lads for a laugh or I don't like her, I'm going to send this around to all her friends. You know, that's not the kind of world we want our young people to have to figure out by themselves. Yeah, just finally on that for a, a minute, you know, this, it would be said, shall we say, well, look, if you don't want your naked image flung around the internet when your relationship breaks up, don't share naked images. That's not advice you like. No, absolutely not. It's it's kind of like the modern equivalent of, well, if you don't want to be sexually assaulted, don't go out and get drunk. Don't wear a short skirt. Don't walk down a street late at night because if you do, we'll blame you for this. And it's not, you know, we should be able to walk two in the morning absolutely hammered out of our heads. That's not the issue. The issue is with the person who sees that and mm. decides to cause harm to that person. So that's where we need to really focus the conversation around. And we see that in domestic violence as well. You know, we say, well, why did you stay? You could have just left or oh, someone hit me, I'd leave straight away. And it's just about that victim blaming piece. So again, like people stand nudes, it's, this is digital intimacy. This is what the internet has, mm. has been used for sex since it since it was invented basically mm-hmm. not the issue the issue is like why are we not as able to talk about the people who choose to commit that sexual violence and is it you know, not an, is, is it is it even unwise advice to say to someone look just be careful is is that <laughs> yeah, unwise absolutely yeah, no, look, everyone can say that because unfortunately we don't quite live they in that world we don't live world. in that ideal world you know, we don't yeah and as much as it, we should be able to be safe, you know, even with Ashley Murphy, you know, she she was just going for a run. Yeah. 
But again, it's, you know, what those other people need to do, um, you know, and uh, are focusing that behavior solely on them. So it, it doesn't matter what we're doing when someone causes us harm. It's all about that person who causes harm. It's so harm. reframing the conversation around. It's about the it's perpetrator, so not about the victim. All right. OK, yeah. listen, Caroline, it's, as I said, not a term I liked and I've no problem never using it again. Uh, Dr. Caroline West from Active Consent and uh, also the Glow West podcast. Thank you. Not a term I ever wanted to use and won't ever use again. Revenge porn. 0818, that's the last time you ever hear me saying it. 0818 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 0833 96 96 96. On Quartz 96 FM. Oh, someone just messaged us in to say avoid... Bandon Road, Barrack Street, etc. There's mayhem. It's Freshers' Week. I drove down Bandon Road at quarter past nine. The place is thronged with huge queues outside pubs and off licences. Not sure will they be on the poverty march on Saturday. Between hangovers and the colds they'll get. <laughs> colds in their kidneys from the skimpy outfits. Mind you, if they're queuing outside the off-licence at 9 o'clock, they'll be waiting a while because the off-licences don't open until midday. But Freshers' Week, yeah, Freshers' Week has hit. <laughs> Between hangovers and the colds they get from the skimpy outfits, and that's just the fellas. I saw a tweet, actually, this morning made me laugh. Someone on the dart in Dublin said it was clear that autumn was upon us when the young fellas getting off the... Oh, the dart had socks on. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Now, yesterday we were talking about endometriosis and talking about a new documentary film that will be premiered in Ireland in October at the IFI Cinema in Dublin, and then the hope is that it'll eventually get to television. Um, and endometriosis is something that we learned affects one woman in nine which is a huge number, a huge number indeed. And uh, after that uh, discussion and uh, talking about the premiere of the movie, I've also been speaking with Johanna. Johanna, it's three months now, I think, since you had your surgery uh, for endometriosis. How are you? I have never been so well in my entire life, um, probably. Like, I did not expect to get that life quality back. I didn't even hope to get so much life quality back. So I I wake up every day and I'm still quite surprised about that I can do things again and I'm not in pain and I don't have to try to get even through the minutes of the day and see how I'll manage. Might I ask what you had to get done? It was fairly major surgery and you had to travel to get it. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with endometriosis and adenomyosis, which is kind of like a cousin of endometriosis. And a lot of women with endo um, also do suffer from adenomyosis. Yeah. Um, there's quite a bit of a difference because endometriosis spreads throughout the pelvis, the abdomen, and it can infiltrate any organ of the body. Adenomyosis is localized in the womb itself. And the only actual cure for adenomyosis is removing the uterus, unfortunately. Yeah. You had endo for nearly 20 years, I think, but you only discovered yeah. it a number of years ago. 
just three years ago, really. Um, I've had per- like I my period started with I think twelve um, with vomiting, severe pain, severe bleeding. But um, I suspect my mom having had endometriosis as well. It just was never diagnosed. So when she went to her doctor, she was told this is normal. So obviously, when I told her, well, I'm in bits, she said, well, that is normal. Yeah. So for like ten years, that's just. I just thought maybe I'm just a bit of a wimp. Um, I didn't. I just lived with it. Um, you just work your way around it. You, you thought you'd inherited bad periods from your mom, in other words. Yeah, and like I didn't even think I had a bad period. I just thought, well, that's just period pain. That's just how it is. Um, that's just the period pain everybody has and everybody talks about. I just had no clue that um, my pain was just very different to other people's pain. And how did you discover that there was something else happening, that you did have endometriosis? In my 20s, then 10 years later, I started having severe stomach pains, digestive issues, breathing issues. And back then I was in physio um, college, so I would have been fairly active and I'd still be out of breath just woken up um, the two flights into our apartment. Yeah. Um, got it checked out and did loads of testing and whether it was the breathing issue or the stomach pains that didn't really find anything. So I just left it at this again. Um, because no one is really aware that endometriosis, there's still the myth that it's a reproductive disease mm-hmm. and it's actually not. It can infiltrate any organ and destroy any function of any organ. So this knowing now would have been my early other signs of endometriosis. And then another 10 years later, this is when uh, I started having really severe pain. Um, when it started with a suspected miscarriage and severe bleeding, severe pain. Yeah. Um, and I was told again, this is just normal and this is what women have to put up with. And in fairness, I had a really good GP who said, this is not normal, we'll send you on. I did a lot of imaging and testing to paid for myself because the other side of endometriosis is they don't know that you have something so they can't help you yeah but because you have something no insurance covers you <laughs> so you just end up unless you have insurance before you're diagnosed with endometriosis or you have your first symptoms yeah no one is going to cover you and my symptoms just got really bad month by month and i have to say Another endometriosis myth is that it's cyclical, that it comes when you're on your period. I never thought I had endometriosis because my pain, I had at random points of my cycle, which I know now is quite typical for endometriosis. So it doesn't need to be um, on your period. And my symptoms, I actually thought in the beginning, it's food poisoning. I woke up in the evening or during the night with severe pains in my abdomen, in my pelvis, um, just about made it to the toilet, vomited my guts out, shaking, cold sweats, Crikey. my legs numb. Um, and then for weeks afterwards, my abdomen would be distended with severe pain, any sort of movement, breathing would be severely painful. So that very classic endobelly, how they call it, because yeah. There would have been so much inflammation all over the abdomen and the pelvis. And those episodes got worse. And at still this stage, I still didn't think that this would be endometriosis. Mm. And I'm a physio, and I learned about it a little bit in physio school. Um, and then I started having bowel and bladder issues. So it was 
severely painful, the filling of the bowel or the bladder. I just feared um, eating, drinking and going to the toilet, which is a very common symptom. Yeah. Because the bowel and the bladder are the first places where endometriosis spreads to. Yeah. A lot of women, unfortunately, are diagnosed with bladder symptoms or with um, interstitial cystitis or with IBS. Then it turns out to actually be endometriosis. When did you finally get your diagnosis, Johanna? And when did you realize I can't have the surgery I need in this country? So two years after onsets of those first severe symptoms and a lot of pushing of my GP and me going to A&E and waiting for 12 hours and not being seen and being sent back home with just more painkillers, which I constantly told them, they're not doing anything. And that's quite classic for endometriosis that painkillers are they're just not working. Um, so I eventually got an appointment with the endo clinic in CUMH in Cork. Got hormonal treatment prescribed, um, which is the first line of treatment. It didn't really do a lot for me. And then they decided the only way to really diagnose is an explorative laparoscopy. So they make two to three little holes into your abdomen, um, put a camera in and look around and see what they can find. Um, They did find endometriosis and I was in so much pain, so much worse pain afterwards. Mm. And at this stage, I started educating myself a lot. And I'm lucky because I'm a physio that I learned what sources to trust. You eventually so, did go to Budapest, I think. To Bucharest, Bucharest. Romania. Because it took me another two months then after the surgery where I eventually saw a consultant. I discussed surgery. And at this stage, I knew that I had educated myself to know that the standard care in endometriosis is not available in Ireland. Yeah. And how did you discover that Bucharest was the place you'd have to go to? Through word of mouth by by a lot of other endometriosis sufferers who went through the Irish system, who realized their issues is getting worse and worse and the treatment is not helping. So... I was really shocked to learn that there's only a handful, maybe 10 surgeons in the whole of Europe. Yeah. In fairness to the Irish medical system, they're trying to develop better care. They're doing their best, but we are still suffering. And this has been 20 years of me suffering. And I'm I'm not a special case. I'm a very normal case. So I'm not a very severe case in terms of my pain. I'm a very normal case of endometriosis and I'm only 35, my uterus is gone. I've lost years of my life in terms of work. I couldn't work anymore. Um, I'm self-employed. I had to stop socializing. I had to stop exercising. I had no life outside my house. Mm. So we do need, unfortunately, better than this. So I went to Bucharest um, to one of the specialists who uh, 99% 99% of his clients are coming from all over the world because there's very few care, affordable care, especially in the States, in Australia, in New Zealand, all over yeah. the world. So it's not just an Irish problem. In fairness, you can't just say, well, the Irish healthcare system is so bad. Mm-hmm. It in seems to be globally that there isn't the response that there. Exactly. That, yeah. And yeah. the care I then received from this doctor, Dr. Mitroy in Bucharest in the Intrusive Care Center, 
it was very different. The first time somebody listened and didn't fob me off or wasn't able to answer my questions because mm. there was many questions in Ireland that were never answered or I was just told, this is normal, it's in your head, your pain is not as, as strong as you think it is. Um, I had the surgery and I woke up from the surgery and although it was like a four hour surgery and everything is really painful after surgery and I was pumped up with painkillers and how, pain how quickly did you notice the difference? I read a lot of patient reports and they said I felt a difference immediately and I was like, how is this possible? Like I've been working in healthcare so long. How is this possible? <laughs> um, I woke up and the, the surgical pain was overwhelming but it was not as strong as my strongest endometriosis pain ever has been. Right. And the minute the surgical pain disappeared, I could feel <laughs> that my baseline was like already so much better. And only then I realized how much pain I had. Yeah, the difference between once the, yeah. once the surgical pain had yeah. subsided, the difference day to day was was immense exactly. yeah. and once there was no surgical pain left in my body there was just <laughs> it's hard to describe there was nothing yeah. my brain and my body were constantly busy dialing down pain and sensing pain and trying to not collapse and trying to function and i at this stage just thought i just have those episodes of pain i did not realize that my body had gotten so used and accustomed to dealing with daily pain so you don't realize how in how much pain you are constantly until until it's not there anymore are you back working now i have started working last week i'm teaching seven classes a week again usually if i would teach seven classes a week i would be tired a little bit when i start back the first week um i feel nothing i feel capable i feel strong i have a life again and if you would have asked me like a year ago, there was zero motivation to keep going with life. That pain was so shattering, so unbearable, yeah. no painkiller worked. Um, I could not imagine going on with life and depression and anxiety and suicide, unfortunately, is a big side effect of endometriosis, of the delaying care. Um, and once you get the care after the delay in treatment um, or the delay in diagnosis, I mean, the care is delayed yeah. and there's waiting lists and most of the time you end up with a gynecologist who might be a good gynecologist but a regular gynecologist is just not usually up to date enough with endometriosis mm. care. Well Johanna it's fantastic that you are as well as you are now and that you're back working. Thank you very much for speaking to me today and the best of good health to you for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Johanna speaking to me about her own endometriosis story, which ended happily in Bucharest with major surgery, which she'd been suffering for years. And she just made the point there's only very few surgeons across all of Europe that will do the kind of surgery that, that she had done. It's a bit like Dr. Veronicus and the, and the mesh, isn't it, really? He's the only surgeon that's doing that kind of work or one of very few that's doing that kind of work. Thank you, Johanna. Um, it, that documentary being shown in the uh, uh, IFI Theatre and uh, the IFI Cinema in Dublin
Film Institute Cinema in Dublin in October. 0818969696 on minimum wage. Morris says there's still a very big problem with paying people in this country. That's just one example. At the moment, there's a litany of security work available all over the country. Nobody wants the jobs because the pay is a pittance for enormous responsibility. Would Leah Varadkar work for the minimum wage? I'll remind you again, if you've not seen it or heard it in the news this morning, uh, today the Cabinet will agree, almost certainly agree, on increasing the minimum wage from 1050 where it presently stands, to 11.30 uh, from the 1st of January, which is a 7.5% increase. And some people are saying, the, the industry, the business sector is saying that's a big increase and that might not be sustainable for a lot of small businesses. But activists, like people before profit and others, are saying that's nothing like enough. And the Congress of Trade Unions says actually that's not enough needs to go to €12 Euro and then go to €12.90 as, as a sort of living wage. And I'm wondering what you think. There's Morris's point, that we're just not paying people enough in this country for responsible work, like take security, and he asks the question, would the overhead car work for the minimum wage? A reminder to you that the TD's pay rise is more than €6,500. They're their salaries are pegged to grades in the civil service. So when grades in the civil service go up, so do their salaries. Uh, they get a 3% increase backdated to 2022. This is the new, this is under the new public service pay proposal, which is currently out for ballot by the unions, which would give 6% by the end of 2023. 3% now backdated to February, 2% then in March next. And there's a third element to it too, which will bring it up to 6% by the end of 2023. TDs will benefit out of that to the tune of €6,500 on their salaries. And at the same context, the minimum wage will go up from, but by 7.6%, from 10.50 to 11.30 per hour. Just worth thinking about it. Now, Anne, you have been, uh, you're contacting me, you're in Brittany at the moment. I am, PJ. But you wanted to talk about McCurtain Street. I do, Peter, yes. <laughs> well, I uh, was in McCurtain Street last week. And normally when I go to town, I get the number eight Boston straight into um, Patrick Street. But a friend dropped me at McCurtain Street because I needed to go to Bridge Street. And for safety, she put me on the metropolitan side of of, um, of McCurtain Street. So I'm trotting along with my guide dog, Quinto. And uh, all of a sudden, he stops and I'm not sure what's happening now. And I said, come on, good boy, because he's a great guy, dog. And he would not budge. And I looked down. I have a per- I have about pin vision. Right. So I only see what's right in front of me. So I looked down and I saw that the eating area, the chairs were about two inches away from the hard duty rubber. And... Um, I, I'm very aware traders have to make their living. So this isn't about traders. This is more about planning, really. Uh, so he, he did not want to go down on the hard rubber. And in the end, he did. I said, come on, we'll do it together. And we walked along and I realized it was quite, it, there was a slope on it. And I just stopped and I thought, if I was dead blind, I wouldn't have known why he stopped. I just wonder how people in wheelchairs 
go along with Curtin Street now. Yeah. And um, I, I thought, you know, this really isn't on, but I see it as an issue of planning and nothing to do with the traders in that sense. Yeah. Um, the rubber, if I remember rightly, the rubber, the rubber went down in the early days of, of COVID so that COVID, out, yes. outdoor trading or outdoor eating and drinking could be facilitated. And I remember the time and people calling up here and saying, hang on, the edges of that are going to be very problematic down the line. And, and here you are with your magnificent yes. dog spotting this day, which I, suppose, I know he's trained to do it, but I, I still can't get over the fact that he spotted that yeah. the edge was dangerous. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And the one thing a guide dog is great for is he will not, if at all possible, go on the road. And I guess maybe for him, it also looked like the road. For example, um, when the bins are out, if there isn't, if somebody leaves a bin halfway across the footpath, he'll size up, will I go in between the inside and the foot and the bin or will I go on the outside and if there isn't enough room for both of us to go safely then he will go on the road but it is the last thing he will do Right, right and your so point is and you're not you're not pointing out any individual trader here and fair play to you for not oh doing, no, for doing that not. but the, the, they're using the space as was put there for them but the planning isn't Indeed. allowing for a walkway. So are you suggesting maybe that and that there should have been a walkway planned so that, yes, you can bring out your tables and chairs and put them out there and the best look to you, but there's got to be a walkway outside that. Yes, that uh, yeah. indeed, a safe walkway, because I'm just thinking of people who may, who may have uh, walking difficulties due to age or due to um, an illness uh, and the slope on that uh, yeah hard-duty rubber, and I'm not sure if in wintertime that that gets wet and that it would be slippery as well. I'm not mm, sure about that, about that because it's an area. Yeah. Something else I spotted but, recently just on a wander down myself. I was out at the at the Everyman and I was wandering down to get my car afterwards and I spotted that, that the edge of it had started to pucker as if two pieces had gone out and I thought, God, you'd get an awful fall if you tripped over that. Indeed. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and n- n- as we're talking about planning, if I could just mention as well that uh, at times uh, some of the uh, um, tactile audio crossings are give very short space to cross. Now again, maybe the people doing it were sighted people and well able people, yeah. but sometimes to get across the road, th- th- there isn't almost enough time to get across while the beeper is going, yeah. and um, some some. Some of the beepers are very low, and uh, with the traffic in, for example, Patrick Street, there are times when it's actually quite difficult to hear the beepers. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to actually agree with you there, um, because I would, remarkably, the the gap is very short. And the tactile tiles, I didn't know that's what they were for, Anne, unless a, until a friend of mine told me that they yeah, can feel yeah, them under, and there's a reason, there's a reason for them. Okay. That's right. It's a great. It's a great help for those of us who who can't see. And uh, as I said, I'm I'm blessed that I c- still can see maybe one to two degrees. So if I was sitting across from you, PJ, I'd I'd see your face or half your face, depending on how near or distant we are. So but you've no idea um, what around. I think I thank God for that. Oh no, not not a clue. Okay. <laughs> and thank you very much for the call. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six Street. She points out that. She couldn't get around the tables and chairs and her dog, her guide dog, didn't want to, because they trained not to, go into the road. 
0818-969696, your thoughts. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Laura O'Mahony is best known for being one-third of comic geniuses Cahoots and has also starred in Bridget Neyman and Cork's improvised panto. You can catch her this Saturday night when she performs at City Limits Comedy Club on Coburg Street. Access all areas. Fish Amble presents four spectacular Pat Kenavan plays back-to-back at the Everyman Theatre in a week-long celebration of the Cork Native. A rare opportunity to see all four of these acclaimed shows, Forgotten, Silent, Underneath and Before, from the 26th to 29th of September. Access all areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events or gigs by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. With Cork Culture Night, Cork City. Enjoy free events in over 100 venues on Friday, September 23rd. See culturenightcork.ie. On Cork's 96FM. Esther was on to me earlier on about trying to get through to a human being at revenue uh, to sort out her tax and how frustrating it is. <laughs> to get in contact, says this message, ring them at half nine on the dot. You'll have no waiting time worth talking about. Thank you. Totally agree with Esther. It's impossible to get through to the tax office for the last two years. We can't get through to the tax office. COVID started it and it's just gotten worse. Come here, I don't know if you want to start scientifically trying to put a baby to bed, if there's any science in it at all. But there's scientists, I don't know who they are or where they're from, but they've identified, they say, the best way to calm a crying child. Listen up now, mammies who didn't sleep last night and have heavy eyelids as they pray the child won't wake before the programme ends so they can listen. Uh, It takes 13 minutes, so they say, to calm a child, to have a go sleep in its cot. Walk around, carrying the baby, nice and calm, nice and quiet, for five minutes. No sudden moves. So walk around for five minutes, for five minutes. No sudden moves. Then sit down for eight minutes and hold the child and don't move for eight minutes. And then put them in the cot. See how that works. That's what that, listen, I'm only going by what science is saying. So they say five minutes walking around. And then when you've wiped the vomit off your shoulder, right? Sit down for eight minutes. Set a timer on your phone with your third spare hand. Set the timer on your phone. And then when that's done, and the timer hasn't woken the child, you hope, put the child in the cot and grand till morning. Would anybody care to try it tonight? See how it works and come back to me tomorrow? <laughs> it's science. Oh, wait, one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Edinburgh Fringe Festival, they've put together some of the best gags from it. Tim Vine is in there at number eight. I used to live hand to mouth. Do you know what changed my life? Cutlery. (laughs) I spent the whole morning building the time machine, so that's four hours of my life I'm definitely getting back. back. (laughs) Do you know if you get pregnant in the Amazon, it's next day delivery. (laughs) Casey and Ross in the morning with Noel DC Cars Blackpool. Exclusively Skoda in the city. Find your next car online at noeldc.com. Open 24-7. 96 FM. 
The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 969696. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Coming up this hour, I'll be talking to a man who has written a book about it, his time in the IRA. He went as a young man to America and he trained in the American military and brought himself right up to special forces level. He was a member of what they call the Marine Recon, which is the Marine Special Forces, the best and the best of the elite of the elite. And he came back to Ireland then and joined the IRA. And he's written a book about his time in the IRA. I'll be talking to him before the hour is over. Fascinating, frightening book to read. But a very interesting man to talk to. 0818 96 96 96. Before we go there, though, we go to talk to Una Buckley about Dyslexia Awareness Month. There are people all around us with dyslexia. And one of the most clever things they do is they hide it. But I'd love to know just how many people do have dyslexia and how badly does it affect them. Una Buckley is uh, Blossom for Life. Uh, Una, first of all, how many people have dyslexia? And secondly, I guess, what exactly is it? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me. Um, So, yeah, I'm Una Buckley. Um, I'm a dyslexic specialist and consultant. So to answer your question first, how many people roughly? So, again, this is kind of growing stats and figures as there's so many, obviously, that are, you know, not assessed or undetected, particularly in the adult years where, you know, in school, many, many years ago, it wasn't kind of a a thing as it is now. But they're saying on average over the next kind of maybe three to five years, about one in three in every classroom will have a different way of learning. So either that be dyslexia, dysgraphia, you know, borderline autism or, you know, anything within that that spectrum box, I suppose, really. Mm. Um, so it, it is growing in numbers of, of stats and, and accessibility. It, it's, been, it's been referred to as word blindness and someone tried to explain to me before. So I see a word in front of me, take a simple word like dog, D-O-G dog. I see it, I know what it is, I can't tell you what it is. Is that a form of dyslexia? Well, it, it's a mix, PJ. So it's really the most important thing to recognise with, with different ways of learning, either dyslexia or whatever people, I suppose, have in that affinity or our labels, is that everything can be different from each one of our perspectives. So right. my level of dyslexia versus, let's say, somebody else's, regardless of age or, or demographics or anything, could be completely different. So I could really struggle with, you know, understanding a word and pronouncing it. Another person could under, have a real difficulty with illustrating their thoughts from their brain onto a page somebody else could just really struggle with their weekly spellings or retention so they may get on really well in their weekly spelling tests or understanding words and concept if they're reading a book but you ask them two days later and they may have very little recall rate so they may not be able to reproduce it that quickly so it's it's very important to recognize and unfortunately which makes it so complicated from a school setting is that it can be very different from Mm. one person to the next it's a kind of a spectrum then there's a, a, a Strong focus on uh, back to school during Dyslexia Awareness Month because I think a lot of people get picked up there for the first time. Exactly, yeah. I suppose the, the most important things to remember is, is starting back to school. Ideally, I'm sure some parents or even teachers listening in, you know, we want to start off on the best foot as possible. It's 
kind of ahead of a new academic year and um, sometimes people have a this is like the start of their actual year you know so it's important to kind of I suppose start the way as we, we want to move forward one thing I want to address is we've been getting a lot of questions at the moment from from parents and teachers around the technology space obviously that's massively growing mm. for people with neurodiversity and you know assistive technology is is hugely going to be beneficial even now but also moving forward you know the amount of apps and software and hardware that's accessible now to people that help helps them read out pieces of information, helps them understand concepts is, is vastly growing. So we're actually doing a seminar and um, it's free next week um, on the 20th of September. Um, so you can get access um, to, we have a few spaces left um, at blossomforlife.com where we'll address more on this technology okay. space of how best to support a student with learning differences. Yeah. Because this is a, it's a constant thing at the moment with the back to school is how they can get technology use in a classroom setting and how best that can help them with that. I guess, Una, there are many differences now in 2022 if a little boy or little girl is discovered to have dyslexia than there were, say, in 1982 or 1992. Completely. Well, I suppose the awareness is, is definitely growing, PJ. So as you mentioned there with, with Dyslexia Awareness um, Month coming up in October, there there is more of an emphasis and there is more and more people, I suppose, understanding a bit more. Does that say, you know, that needs to stop there? Of course not. You know, there's so many other strands to dyslexia, having a difficulty with maths, as you mentioned before. If some students fall in the dyscalculia bracket, if you have an issue with handwriting or, you know, have a, an, an issue there from emotional skills, then you fall maybe into the dysgraphia bracket so it's all about kind of moving the way forward to creating more and more awareness as we you know develop and as we yeah. learn more about them as ourselves so like it's, it's it's not just a word it's more like a spectrum it's more like a, a it has so many different ways in which it can affect somebody Exactly. There's so many layers to it, really. There are so many layers to it. And if you have one, that doesn't mean you have the don't have the other. Yeah. You know, you can have, you know, obviously a range of, of different ways of learning um, and you can, you know, have complications in, in lots of different strands. Mm-hmm. But it's important to recognise that, you know, it, it's the, there is a different way of detection and assessments for, for each of those, which could be obviously draining and, and costly. As, well. as, as we've been saying, it's, it's often picked up in the early days of school, but parents like to be able to watch their youngsters and see, can they spot anything? Are there any tips you'd have there? Can, can it be spotted by parents during the learning years, the formative years? It definitely can with, with some element, I suppose, of, of knowing what to look out for, really. So I suppose the, the kind of the, the, the signs now, unfortunately, are again varying depending upon what the student has difficulty with. But the, some of the main telling signs, letter reversal, common B's and D's, P's and Q's would be a huge one that's been thrown out. So that would be kind of something that most people would be aware of. And then more of the subtleties, you know, how is their retention? We said earlier about the spellings. If they get, you know, 10 out of 10 or 8 out of 10 in their spellings and a Friday, can they remember them and reproduce them on a Sunday or the Monday morning? How are they overall with reading abilities, you know, speed, handwriting? You know, there, there's so many aspects to look at, but I suppose the main telling signs is how are they in the relation to the curriculum day to day? 
how much time are we spending and investing in the homework? You know, there's a lot of questions at the moment about, you know, homework and how do we best support a a student doing homework and how that varies depending upon age group. You know, homework has become a huge investment of time and energy, both for Mm -hmm. parents and teachers and the students themselves. And and generally speaking, has has very little, I suppose, you know, benefit longer term. Yeah, there's a debate going on. I'm sure you've heard of it. And it's come up on this programme more than once, whether or not homework serves any purpose in 2022. Do you think it does? My personal opinion, no. (laughs) No, That can be counteracted as well, totally. But there is very little scientific benefit and research stating that fact. If a student is at an an academic performance or in an academic setting for X amount of hours every single day, even taking out breaks, that's enough of a brain capacity for them to, you know, go away and then do extracurriculars, do a bit of sport, have a bit of downtime and then go to sleep and try to do it all again the day after. You know, so there, there's very little benefit to overdoing additional okay. work outside of school because their brain is already being maximised during the oh, day okay. anyway. No, I, I thought maybe simplistically that parents spending time with children doing homework, that, that they might spot some some indications they can do, yes, they definitely can do, as we were mentioning there, let's say with letters and yeah. patterns and just overall speed and effectiveness. Generally speaking, if a teacher says, look, these are your three things to do, and on average, maybe their primary school should take them maybe about 20, 25 minutes, no longer to yeah. do primary school homework. If that's taking excessively longer, oh, you know, see. if it's causing an awful lot of drama and lack of focus and lack of attention and concentration, then there's something else that we need to, to address there as I to why is that becoming such a struggle? Okay, people want to find out more about your webinar that's coming up at the end of September. Uh, it's free. Blossom for Life, which is Blossom or Blossom number four life.com. Blossom number four life.com. Una Buckley. Thank you. 0818 96 96 96. Yes, Awareness Month is in October, but a lot of people will learn for the first time uh, this month in September that there may be an issue with dyslexia. 0818 96 96 96 on the minimum wage and the pay rises, etc. Uh, 80 cent by 39 hours by 52 weeks is 1,622 euro and 40 cents. Uh, yeah, that's true. How much of a pay rise did the politicians get? Well, we told you that. They get... Okay, they're entitled to... We'll go through this again. They're entitled to 6% until the end of, between now and the end of 2023 because of the public service pay proposal. 3% of that is backdated to last February. 2% then takes effect on the 1st of March 2023. There's a third bit which is a bit complex, but basically it's 6.5%. That will give TDs a total rise in their pay of six and a half thousand euro, which will bring a TD's basic salary up to a hundred and eight grand. And senators are going to find hefty pay rise as well. Does anyone? Fa- okay, there's a random one out of out of the left field. Does anyone find that bread is getting worse and worse as time goes by? People talk about bread being better years ago, but now it's worse than ever. Any thoughts? 
I think it probably depends on the bread you buy and where you buy it and how much you pay for it. Well, thank you for that. Anyone reckon that the quality of bread, ordinary bread now, ordinary bread that you make a bit of toast with, make a sandwich with, she says average supermarket bread. Okay, average supermarket bread. You get it in Aldi for, what, less than a euro and you pay more in more places. Average supermarket bread. This caller wonders, is it just me? Or is the quality of average supermarket bread gone down the pan? Do you know what I'll do this afternoon? When I make my little sandwich at home for myself this afternoon, I'll think about that. Because I tend to buy the cheapest I can get, because we go through a lot of it at home. In Aldi, I'd buy Aldi white bread or wherever it happened to be. Supermarket bread. Has the quality of it gone down the pan? Thanks. 0818 96 96 96. Stream the freshest hits of 2022 on the Hit Mix. Or find the biggest workout bangers on the Fit Mix. The Cork's 96FM Hit Mix and Fit Mix are streaming live right now. Streaming live right now. Melody is playing, playing. Download the Cork's 96FM app. Listen on your smart speaker. Or go to 96FM.ie. Cork's 96FM. New series starting soon on RTE. Um, it's already started, actually, called Takeaway Titans. They're looking for the best takeaway in Ireland. We know that particularly over lockdown, takeaways and food trucks and all those, it, it really, really mushroomed because for a while, all we can get was flipping takeaway. So it's led to a huge growth in the, in the takeaway business. And it's running for the next uh, number of weeks and it'll be looking for the best pizza joint, the best Indian, the best chipper, the best burger joint, the best chicken joint. Susie is one of the judges. Hi, Susie. It's a great idea. Morning. Hello. Hello, can you hear me there? Hi, yes. Susie. Gotcha. Yeah, good. You're, Perfect. Yeah, you're one of the judges on this. I am indeed with Dylan McGrath. Yeah. Now, you must have had great fun filming this and sampling all that it food. It was a lot of fun and it was a lot of eating, as you could tell. Yeah. So, the, 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 this, look, the format's not exactly a new one. You take different no. style every week and you select a qualifier for an overall final. Indeed. Mm. Um, and I have to say, it was it was lovely to see such a cross-section of different takeaways out there. Also, people elevating the game because even with this week's episode uh, with the chipper... Um, we, we saw things that I just wasn't quite expecting in a good way as well um, because we were looking for, like, I genuinely just think fish and chips from a chipper. But yeah. we, we've got different types of just the way it's being cooked, flavours, uh, quite adventurous stuff. So for me, it's really lovely to see that the takeaway scene in Ireland has moved on so much. There's so much experimentation, which is lovely to see because, you know, sometimes... Uh, food needs a facelift sometimes and making and like combining new flavours and techniques it's just nice for Ireland to see. Yeah, you mentioned fish and chips, it's a particular favourite in my house, both myself and my son are big fish and chips fans yes. but you're, you're right in saying, no two fish and chips are the same None 
you know, and to do and, it, to do it really well is a skill. Yes, absolutely, and just everything from the execution of frying the chips to the batter. Do you know when you actually break it down, there was a lot of things we were looking for, which you kind of just, you know, you just assume and you just eat a chipper. You just go and get your fish and chips, and you, you just expect it to be of a certain quality. But when you're presented with three very different chippers, fish and chip shops, you're kind of like, wow, you've done it really differently. So, will the public get to decide the overall winner here, Susie? Indeed, indeed. So, the final episode, there is the all five uh, finalists from the different rounds, and they get to compete with each other, but it goes to the public vote, which was fantastic for us because it was very hard, you know, to make a decision. Yeah, of course, you've got, you know, you, you, you've got Farm Yourself, winner of Britain's Best Home Cook. So, so cooking, you know, you're, you're not just there to sample. You know how it was cooked. You know what goes into it. <laughs> well, you're it. very kind. Thank you. Yes, and I do have a takeaway background. My family uh, still run our family takeaway. It's been there since 1980 in Lisburn called The Manly. And, you know, I was born and, like, raised there, like, from when we were, like, all toddling we were in the takeaway just yeah. to help out and from the age of seven I was prepping food so it's it's in my blood so uh, this I think I might have up. passed your family chipper on my holidays in the last couple of years I was in, Liz- I was in Lisbon so I probably, I probably did pass it yeah you did <laughs> crikey there you go so with the chipper one I suppose you probably had a particular interest in that episode Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, even just like frying, you know, like there, there is a key temperature to make sure that chips are nice and crispy and that they're not greasy. All of those things, that's what I was looking for. Same with the batter yeah. um, on the, the fish that yeah. they chose. So, I mean, for me, it was kind of, it was exciting to see. Yeah, it was I, really I, kind of exciting. I'd be dead choosy about be batter. <laughs> Dead choosy, because sometimes there's more batter than there's fish. And it's a, it's a very important balance to oh, strike. Oh, the ratio. The ratio is very important, and that's what we did talk about. We were like, we we'll hope it's not too thick of a batter. We we'll hope it's crispy. We we'll hope it's not soggy. You know, we did actually talk about it. You're like, oh, there's a lot of things that we're, we're very critical oh, about our fish and oh, chips. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Badly battered fish. Is better is worse than no fish at all. <laughs> you are right. <laughs> Listen, stay there, Susie. Thanks for that. And, 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 and in fact, I'll, I'll let you go. And I'll talk on. I'll talk with with Hugo from from Kylie's. Uh, Susie, thank you. Uh, that's Susie from the judge. Uh, Susie Lee Arbuthnot from Lisburn and County Antrim. I know I passed that that family chip of hers, and she's one all rounder as well. And she can take away background. Now, Ky- Matt, the famous Matty Kylie's. The famous Matty Kylie's reopened last year, and we covered this. And I went down, and it's as good as it ever was. Hugo, morning. Hello, good morning. How are you? Good, good morning, you, Susie. Yeah. Good oh, morning, she, everybody. Else. You feature. You feature <laughs> in the Chipper episode. Yes, I am. I wonder how Matty would feel about all of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you yeah. serve up? You served up fish and chips, yeah? Exactly, yeah, we do fish and chips and uh, it's very important for us to be in uh, good business and we do fish and chips and gluten-free. Yeah, you do the you do gluten-free batter? Exactly, gluten-free wow. batter. Yeah, yeah. I heard about you doing that. Uh, and <laughs> be, yeah, that, was, that was nearly a force. So, Susie was saying that the important thing with, with fish and chips and I'd be very much 
in agreement here. They, you can't have too much batter. It can't be too thick. Exactly. You need to be perfect. You have the <laughs> you have a technical to be to be perfect. Uh, all customers like it the butter soft and crispy. Yeah. You know, and. Um, I'm very pleased to do something, people starting to like it, you know, because first of all, people starting to using it, flour, everybody know fish and chips and flour. Now we change for gluten-free, it's very important, a lot of people is yeah. tolerant and you need to, to, to updating uh, new, new things. In the, in the, so in the, is your batter gluten-free all the time now, Hugo? All the time, Okay, yeah. so you just serve, it, you serve gluten-free batter as standard? It, it, no, no, just using uh, gluten-free butter. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Very good, very good, very good. Okay. And you feature on this episode. Am I allowed to know how you did? Uh, we're doing well. <laughs> um, it's something uh, very nice. We have a lot of chefs in the, in, the, in the judge. You have a big team in the back. We're doing well, we're doing well. Yeah, oh, good man, good man. You, 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 you've, you've followed on. The tradition of Matty Kiley's is pious and glorious and immortal in Cork. And uh, it's run by a new crew now. Hugo is the chef in there. They feature on Takeaway Titans. We're not allowed to know how they did, but I suspect they did rather well. And it's it's on RTE. I don't have the time written down. I'll tell you when. Uh, RTE 2. And it's on the player. It started on the 8th of September, which means second episode is on this week. Thanks, Susie, and thank you, Hugo. 0818969696. Ah, yes. Fish and chips, one of life's simple pleasures. What makes a great takeaway? Great fish and chips, great burger, great pizza, great chicken. What makes a great takeaway? I heard during the week, although I haven't seen it, but I would trust the person who told me, there's one of the takeaways around town is doing chips, cheese and garlic. Now that is something that is, until you've tried it, you've not experienced it and you may never want to have it again or you may shovel it down your neck like it's going out of fashion. I don't know. I'm not a chips, cheese and garlic person myself. I never was. But some 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 takeaway is charging five euro sixty or something like that, six euro for chips, cheese, and garlic at the moment. Like that's that's mad. Carry on. But what does make a good takeaway? Are you, would you be a fish and chips buff now? Because I do. I like my fish and chips. A bit too much. Take a look at my waistline. You'll see. But I do like my fish and chips. What makes a great takeaway? What's the secret to a great takeaway meal? Fish and chips, say. A secret to great fish and chips. And it has to be. No, you can keep the mushy peas. Well, no, don't give me puree. This pea puree crack. It's like it's like green gunk in a cup. No, either give me proper peas or mushy peas. Don't want your puree. That's for your peas. Oh, 818 Half past nine, 25 to 10, Thursday on RTE2. And it'll be on the player as well. And I suspect Matty Kiley's did very well. In 1975, uh, a young Irish-American is on a mission to enlist in the U.S. Marine Corps. He wants to be a Marine recon. His name is John Crawley. He rose to the rank of sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps. And then he came back from America and he promptly joined the IRA. And he's written a book about his time 
in the American military and in the IRA and what he got up to. And he, of course, was one of the crew of the Marita Ann when it was um, captured. And he did time, not once, but twice. John Crawley now lives in County Monaghan and uh, and he joins me. The book is called The Yank. John, morning. Good morning, PJ. Good to speak with you. You'd be described, you. I think, pro- you live now in County Monaghan. You, you'd be, you'd just be described, I think, as unrepentant. Might I ask why a young man with no northern connections goes to America, joins the elite of the elite over there, they don't get much more elite than Marine Recon, and leaves mm-hmm. what could have been a, a, a glittering American military career to come home and join the IRA. Why'd you do that? Well, I had no northern connections, but I had Irish connections, and uh, I saw it as uh, uh, I was inspired to fight for the to stand beside men and women who were fighting for the full freedom and independence of Ireland and to challenge British jurisdiction in this country. And and basically, you know, uh, through the long Irish period of Irish history, there's basically three choices you can make. You stand idly by, you actively collaborate, or you resist. And I made my decision, PJ. Yeah. And you specifically went over to get the highest level of U.S. military training that you could achieve. Yes. Well, I did I did so with a view towards enhancing my own professional development and to um, uh, test my commitment to whether I, I, I did, whether or not I would actually come home back to Ireland and join the IRA. But I didn't do so with this, uh, you know, this view that I was going to come home and, you know, make everything better for the IRA or be some sort of asset that way. I, I mean, I really believed at the time that the IRA was, was this professional, highly uh, sophisticated guerrilla organization that I was hearing about, actually hearing about mostly from the Brits. So I didn't really particularly believe the IRA needed my help, but uh, I wanted to join and do what I could. And uh, as time went on, I began to see that there were certain weaknesses and yeah. uh, organizational failures that you know could have been addressed and weren't. I was reading a book over the last few days and you point out like when you came back with the high level of military training and skill package that you brought, you you were shocked, I think, at, at some of the ways the IRA was, was working. And so some areas were highly organized and highly strategic and others were, were very much ad hoc. Well, <clears throat> the IRA, uh, very few people in the IRA did, uh, had professional military training, and that didn't surprise me. I mean, that that, that was obvious. It was a volunteer guerrilla organization. But what, what did surprise me was the lack of interest at a, at a higher level within the IRA at, 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 at um, developing, you know, military tactics, uh, skills, yeah. and procedures that would have enhanced our ability as as an organization to uh, you know I fully supported you know uh, waging war on the British military presence in, in in the north of Ireland I didn't um and to do everything we possibly could to avoid casualties that that were you know that were um that were not you know British military for example and 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 partly to do that was to, to was to develop our our professionalism yeah you would you you <clears throat> met and I got to know quite well Martin McGuinness um, and I think you, you you say in the book you were starstruck at first, um, but I think your relationship was a tad fraught. That's my reading of it, John. Was it? <clears throat> it became so because um, 
I, you know, I liked Martin, and Martin was a very, very intelligent and very intelligent man. But uh, I couldn't detect any real interest in, you know, developing our military capabilities uh, to a higher level. In fact, I often got the feeling that I was bothering him, and that he almost took it as almost a personal slight that, you know, things could be improved, like that reflected on him or on the organization, which which I found very surprising because at the active service unit level. The, the men, you know, were very keen on all this and were very anxious to learn. And, and uh, I mean, the people like Jim and I talk about were just uh, absolutely uh, so motivated to uh, improve themselves militarily yeah. in there's, any way they there, could. There's you know? a story you tell about um, when Martin told you about a rocket attack. And mm-hmm. in his description of the rocket attack, you understood from your training that's not how it happened. It can't happen that way. You tried to tell him... And he didn't like that. Well, he, he, he got a bit sullen about that. And I found that a little bit uh, disconcerting because, I mean, if I meet somebody who's in another military or another special forces, whatever, you know, I'd have their head tortured from, you know, just how do you do this? How do you do that? And, you know, the conversation back and forth and the flow and learning. But I found uh, with some IRA people, especially at the top, that uh, – if you made suggestions on improvement or had any with uh, what they perceive as criticism, they didn't like it. And that to me was a lack of professionalism that shocked me. Yeah. There are many civilian victims of the IRA. Now, there are many civilian victims of the other side too. There are many civilian victims of the IRA who would be appalled at the thoughts of a former IRA man writing a book like this. Where do you stand on civilian victims, John? Well, I mean, there, there shouldn't be any civilian victims, but I have to say that I don't feel responsible for incidents that I had no personal involvement in. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'm asked uh, in a lot of interviews to uh, sort of justify things that are unjustifiable, but I feel no more responsibility for actions I was not involved in than I do, for example, the Miley massacre in Vietnam because I joined the American military, or maybe an Irish army officer would feel over, you know, tying Republicans to landmines. I mean, you know, uh, to put things in the, in, in the in its greatest perspective, I mean, none of this would have happened if the British kept their noses out of this country. Yeah. But, you know, terrible things did happen. I personally wasn't, I was personally never involved in anything that I'm ashamed of, but shameful things did happen. And uh, we all regret that. And we all have empathy for anybody suffering. And it's no, I mean, anybody that, lost anybody as a result of IRA actions for the IRA to say they didn't mean it. I'm, I'm sure that just adds insult to injury. Mm. Now, you don't approve of the Good Friday Agreement, I believe. Why? Uh, well, let me put this in the, in the perspective when, we, when we're talking about what they call the peace process. I fully support the peace. I am totally behind the peace, but I am critical of a process that cannot lead to Irish Republican goals because the United Ireland that's proposed by the Good Friday Agreement is one where the sectarian dynamic between Protestant Unionists and Catholic Nationalists is kept intact. So in other words, it's offering territorial unity in exchange for a guarantee of continued civic division and an enduring place for the British Crown and representing a minority faction in this country who would prefer to see themselves as some sort of post-colonial garrison than as citizens of an Irish Republic. I mean, the goal of Irish Republicanism was to end the connection with England, to break the connection with England, and to build a joint civic identity. Mm. And yes, Ulster Unionists are unquestionably a distinct community, but they are not a separate nation. Because if they were a separate nation, Prince Charles, we're told, is coming to visit the four nations of the UK. 
Well, they don't say the five nations in the UK. They don't say he's visiting Ireland, Scotland and Wales and the two nations in Ireland. Mm. But it's strange, I find funny that, you know, Ireland's one nation when it's under British rule. But as soon as we start talking about national unity, we're two nations. Do you not accept that in every conflict that ever was anywhere in the world, there's always compromise at the end and that the Good Friday Agreement was the compromise that allowed Northern Ireland to be now peaceful? Well, Northern Ireland, you see, it is, we have, we have, we have peace. And I, 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 I say we support the peace. But you see, there has to be, to reach Republican goals, there, our goals, there has to be a trajectory towards that, that that's open in some way. Uh, if you look at the Downing Street Declaration, uh, which mentions the, has 13 points and mentions the unions if you don't aid them, never mentions the, the nationalism or republicanism. If you look at the Mitchell principles and you look at the framework documents, you'll see that the Irish Republic was not on the table. So, you know, when, when, when you're fighting a, a struggle, you, it does have to end the negotiations, but you must have some opportunity to reach your goals yeah. at the negotiating table. Which 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 wasn't the case, and it was the same thing in uh, the Anglo-Irish uh, treaty negotiations when partition was already brought in before they even negotiated. So what the Brits do and what they always do is their strategy is to get republicanism in and keep republicanism out. Yeah. What what did you think of yeah. two things in particular? Will you write about the the shaking hands, Martin McGuinness shaking hands yeah. with the Queen when that happened in in two thousand and twelve? But Think yeah. back to just yesterday's news. You may have seen the, the clip of Michelle O'Neill speaking with yeah. King Charles yesterday. What did you think of that? That was a very warm conversation. What did you think of that? Well, Tony Blair said uh, at the start of the Good Friday Agreement that decommissioning uh, arms was not important. What was important was decommissioning mindsets. And in the incident you described you see the decommissioned mindset in action, a mindset that is saying to the Irish people that the British royal family has an enduring role to play even in a future United Ireland. And, uh, you know, we have to end the sectarian dynamic. And, uh, you know, we can't do that by, you know, retaining the malignancy of conflicting national loyalties, which are baked into the new Ireland envisioned under the Good Friday Agreement, which is neither new nor agreed, but it's predicated in all the old divisions. And, you know, there's been a, a huge, what the Americans call mission drift in all this, that the struggle was simply to end partition. Uh, there was no partition in 1916 when, when, when the rebellion was launched. There was no partition in 1791 when the United Irishmen were formed. So what do they mean by United Ireland? Because Ireland was already geographically united. They meant the unity of Irishmen as, as, as a joint, with a joint civic identity uh, and the connection with England broken. But what you saw with Sinn Féin there, with Martin McGuinness and uh, Michelle O'Neill, is you've seen an organization that now says, we're not going to break the connection with England, we're going to retain it even in the new United Ireland. Okay. Which, uh, it's, not, it's not a Republican position. Okay, it may bring peace. You know, it may bring peace, and, yeah. and that might be fine. And I know there's many people in this country want peace at any price and under any name, and that's fine. But it is not an Irish Republic. Okay. Lastly, you had yeah. to deal for quite some time with Whitey Bulger. And briefly, yes. what was he like? Well, you know, um, PJ, with, with, all, with the movies about him and all the books and so much in hindsight, you know, we know things now we didn't know at the time. But he came across as a very plausible businessman, uh, intelligent, very capable, 
and with access to resources we needed. I mean, if I'd have known that this guy was murdering people and pulling their teeth out and, you know, some stuff, you know, we know now is just, it's absolutely appalling. But um, we simply did not know that at the time. I, I mean, I knew the man was a criminal. I knew the man was involved in organized crime and uh, needs must when the devil drives. And if you're trying to get weapons, you have to deal with people who are willing to right. uh, break the law. But, um, you know, he came across, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a businessman who was willing to maybe bend the rules a bit. But certainly not as the mercurial psychopath that yeah. that he was apparently was you know he, he didn't portray the constant air of menace that you see in the movies you know he yeah. could be quite urbane and, I, I, you know. I was quite taken aback actually in the book John by your description of first meetings you had with him actually I, it, it wasn't yeah. how I had expected him to be portrayed John I'm going to have to yeah. leave it there the book is a fascinating read it's a now I, I will say it say it to your what well, to your face you're on the end of the line but it's a frightening read John and it's a read that will make some people uncomfortable but it's also an incredibly an incredible telling of history or a period in our history John Crawley his book is called The Yank he was part of the crew of the Marita Ann uh, the gun running trawler back in the day did time for that did time for other things too but the book is out now it's called The Yank make of it what you will I'm enjoying it um, I just flicked through it now I'm reading it properly it's, it's an excellent but frightening read Can we just talk the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 83 396 On Quartz 96 FM. Loads of stuff coming in on fish and chips and bread. And I'm going to have to hold on to them until tomorrow. I think most of them anyway, but we will come back to them. 0818969696. On Saturday, September 17th, a group from Palestine. They're all Bethlehem natives, will perform at a nano-nail place. Uh, Mohammed Alaza, good morning. Good morning and thank you for hosting me to talk uh, about our visit. Uh, we are a group of Palestinians. Uh, we are 22 uh, people, uh, mainly our children, which is 17 of this number are under 18 years old. And uh, 18 of uh, the group are their first time leaving Palestine, right. which is leaving Palestine is not something easy to be honest to reach uh, Dublin, which is talks us about two days uh, leaving uh, Palestine, which is on Monday in the afternoon, and we arrived like Tuesday, uh, which is late on. So, our group are dancers and a musician. We play uh, music, the Palestinian folklore uh, music and the tradition to keep our traditional uh, music, which is that we learn it from our grandparents uh, mm -hmm. since uh, before 1948, which is they used to play it uh, in weddings and different um, celebrations, uh, as well the Dabka dance, which is the Palestinian folklore dance. Uh, uh, we're still keeping the same tradition and from generation to generation. We're here to present Palestine, not just Ida Camp. Um, we're trying uh, as much we can to talk about Palestine because not always we have the opportunity to talk about our life, yes. our our culture, and about our traditional uh, dance. I want to say something about the group. The holy group are 
originally they came from different villages, uh, which is, are mainly located between Hebron and Jerusalem. But all these villages, it's under Israel control. We're not allowed to access these uh, villages. And at the moment, we are living in a, a refugee camp, which is called Aida. Uh, we're talking about uh, 5,000 people live in this camp in less than half kilo square meters. Uh, the life in in the camp, not easy, uh, I would say. It is every year become more difficult and yeah. more harder for uh, all the residents. And will you be talking about this during your performances as well as the music and the dancing? Yes, we're going to give uh, some talks uh, during uh, most of the events as well. We carried on a photography exhibition while taking these photos by the children from Ida refugee camp. Very good. Now, you can get tickets for Nano Nagel on Eventbrite, I understand. Yes, you can. They can get uh, the tickets from uh, the, the events. Uh, or just contacted any of the organizer. I'm sure like there is lots of links sure. in online as well. Sure. And you'll be joined by uh, Coldest Kjol Tori, the pipe band from Pelipihan, uh, Joan Denise, Moriarty School of Dance, the cabin crew, Mishnok, huge group. Sounds like a fantastic event. It's at uh, the Nananagel Centre, the Presentation Secondary School, half seven, Saturday, September 17th. You'll get your tickets on Eventbrite. Thank you, Mohammed, for yeah. being with us, albeit very briefly. I do appreciate it. Uh, that's it. We're over time. Program edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. I'll keep all your comments on all sorts until tomorrow, just after nine. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96 FM. Upper Glanmire Community Association presents its Family Fun Day on Sunday, the 25th of September. There'll be games like tug of war and sack races, a children's art competition, vintage cars, fun fair rides, the Upper Glanmire Bake Off, and much, much more. For more details on the event, check out Upper Glanmire. Community Association on Facebook. If you have an event you would like mentioned, email the details to corkdiary at 96fm.ie. The Cork Diary. With Tusla Fostering, now seeking foster carers from a diverse range of backgrounds in Cork. See fostering.ie. On Cork's 96fm.